0: Episode 18, with artist Kinseth Armstead. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with conceptual and multimedia installation artist Kinseth Armstead. Born and raised in Washington, D.C., Kinseth found his artistic path in high school at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts, later receiving his Bachelors of Fine Arts from the Corcoran College of Arts and Design, and his Masters in Integrated Digital Media from the Tandon School of Engineering at NYU. With a career spanning over three decades, his provocative works centralize history, American culture, and the complex narratives embedded in ethnicity. His multimedia public art installations are deliberately in dialogue with the communities in which they reside. Nestled in his large-scale and, at times, architectural artworks are themes around the Black imagination, social justice, abolition, redemption, freedom, and change. He was also recently named to the Public Design Commission in New York City. Although Ken Seth is known for his independent installations, he actually started his career in collaborative work with XPRC, an art band which included his mentor Tony Cox, along with artists Doug Anderson and Mark Pearson. This avant-garde group was dedicated to using music, video and other ephemera to critique culture and existing social norms, especially as it pertains to the art world notions of individual genius and critical theory. Kinseth's most recent public artwork, Boulevard of African Monarchs, connects the hub of African excellence in Harlem, USA, to the royal court of the Casena people in Tebele, Burkina Faso. It's on display until August of 2021 at the intersection of 116th Street and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard in Harlem, New York. Kinseth is a prodigious scholar, and we cover a lot of ground. In this episode, we discuss his 30-30-30 formula for consistent artistic production, the link between Christianity and social media, the role time plays in criticism, and what community engagement in art really looks like. Kinsvedt's portfolio is extensive, immersive, and influential. His work has infiltrated the streets of New York for decades with projects and installations that focus on creating images and cultural activities that aim to close the gulf of space and time between African and African-American identity, communication, and social ritual. Recorded remotely and safely, it is with great pleasure that I introduce to you Kinseth Armstead.
1: Before we kind of started Um, Kinseth and I were talking about a lot of concepts and one that we spoke about that I want to hop right into and then I'll backtrack to, you know, kind of your origins, you know, your your superhero origin story, all of these things. Um, (laughs) But I think one thing that I find just really phenomenal is just the longevity of your career and how even, and we spoke I I don't know your age. I don't need to know, but I know that <laughs> you you got to New York in 1990, and you still have <laughs> such an incredible like joy and like youthful energy um, about yourself. Um, Thank you. And so my question is: How can you stay? How does one stay an artist for so? long and in, in, in asking that I mean you know the the motivation that it takes every day to wake up and go to the studio um, the the personal the personal conversations that you have to have with yourself when your work is or is not recognized okay so maybe the role of the ego uh, mm-hmm. those those are kind of the questions that I, that I like to have answered.
2: First of all, I just want to say thanks for inviting me to have this conversation. And this is really—I mean—one of the answers is that this is really one of the reasons why uh, I've stayed an artist so long is that I've been in this dialogue with people who I really respect, and that is more of a satisfying result to me than almost anything else. And then the second part of it is much longer. Answer is that I never—I never anticipated I would be an art star, and I never wanted that or even understood that and the a lot of the people that i met early on like um leonardo drew and uh tony cox and i collaborated with um leonardo drew i mean i collaborated with um the first person i collaborated with was mel Chen, and i met in art school in 1988 89 and i did a collaboration with him when i was an art student and then that led to me getting in the and that's where i met leonardo drew and then after doing Skowhegan, I had people who could write me recommendations, and I got into the Whitney program straight out of undergrad, and oh so I in New York. And I did Skowhegan in '89 between my senior and junior year in college, and then I did the Whitney program straight out of college. And then I met Tony Cox, and the next ten years were more influenced by Tony Cox and that I was already making media art and conceptual art. Um, and the conversations I had with those people, Mel Chin, who's still a friend of mine, and I was on a panel with Mel Chin about a year ago, and I, the, I got a Creative Capital grant. Uh, you know, it's like I hadn't seen him in years, and I was in the blackmail show with Mel Chin. And so you realize that there are all these loops of uh, associations and types of artists, and you end up uh, revisiting them again and again, doing residences with them. And Leonardo, it's like, if I hadn't met Leonardo Drew, I don't think I would make the work the way I make now. Like now he doesn't make that much work he makes work and the process is uh is such that um uh like the way i work with now it's like i make like one maybe two two works a year and he makes maybe he's working all the time and i'm working all the time but there are very few pieces that come out of that that end up being final work that he would show um and i think one of the more satisfying things over 30 years i don't think that um I look back at all the different kinds of shows I've done video shows. I mean, I was in the very first video show that the studio museum in Harlem ever did. It was the very first video show. shows it 2003 It's called Vinny video video. Uh, and funny thing is like Tony Cox is in that show. And that was like my first independent video having worked with Tony for 10 years. And then, you know, he'd been working for two years, but then I'm in that show with him. And, you know, over the years, these, these conversations, they, they feed you more than anything. Cause you can't, you can't eat a New York Times article, and you can't live on it forever, and you can't even necessarily say you'll sell work because of it. Because I know tons of people who sell work, they don't get press. People who get pressed, they don't sell work. They, you, you get some people get both, and and I had never even had an idea that I would be part of the commercial art world. It just never, it just never occurred to me that that would be a thing. And I think that that's been really healthy for me. I've been always able to be experimental, so. The funny thing is is that you you can't eat press but the relationships and the conversations you have with friends that is literal food and you can go to their house have dinner and that makes you feel better at the end of the day if someone understands the work you're doing than all that external stuff. So and I know that sounds like a very convoluted answer but you know like um I I went to a a party the other day and it was um and it was like uh, sort of talking about the Leonardo's work at um at uh, the park, um, ah, Madison Square Park. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Don't look at me!" Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, the the conversation that we had there was amazing to me because we were still vibing on something that over thirty years of having this dialogue, there was still, even the, it was shorthand then, you know, like just to have this dialogue back and forth. Our work's completely different. We don't even hang out in the same milieu anymore. We're not, you know like when I first got to New York we were like best friends and I kind of grew up as an artist in his studio because I would just visit and sort of see how someone makes work and does their thing uh, but now literally I think that all of those things um, and people like Peggy Cooper Kay Fritz and uh, the relationship of other artists I, I look back and I go wow that that's really what kept me making work for three years um, and I think now in the nineties there were a lot more alternative spaces and you could just um some of the early work that I did, uh I still have a really great relationship with Renee Cox. And now people are really starting to give her juice. But you know, you look at it in the nineties, there were I wouldn't have had three quarters of the shows I had if it weren't for Renee. Like she was just making shows for other people of color. She'd be like, Hey kids, let's have a show. And uh and that I think um and that, that she did a show at Rivington, um, ABC No Rio, and she did another show, which was called African-American Artists of the 90s, which is a very bold name, you know, but Renee doesn't do anything that's not bold. So it's just like, she's like, I know the African-American artists. And it was like, <laughs> it was Renee was in the show, uh, Danny Tisdale was in the show, Carol Walker was in the show. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, so it's just like, I was in this show. and. And I look back, on it and that was, a, I think, um, was it, De, no, that wasn't the court of a museum, but it was in Connecticut. In any event, uh, the, the, the point is, those, all of this, this community that we have, and now I realize that, you know, this IBI community, community conversation is now another, you know, another leg to, to communication across generations. And it both supports me, but it also supports you because you see, seeing how other people think. I mean, if, if, if I hadn't sort of seen Fred Wilson and known about how it is that this, you know, uh, amazing um, artist, he, Fred Wilson really did not get early career success. And he spent all of his time creating and curating shows at uh, Above Midtown. And it took a long, long time for people to understand institutional critique in the way that he did it. And so all of these stories, you having access to me me having access to you, that's, that's what creates our longevity. The rest of it, I don't know what that stuff is for, but generally speaking, it doesn't last very long.
1: That's amazing. And it's so funny, Renee Cox's studio is literally up the street from me. Um, yeah. And Renee has been, um, you know, an amazing um, mentor and friend to me since I met her as well, actually at the Studio Museum. I met her at the mm-hmm. Studio Museum a few years ago, and we just kind of latched on to each other, and particularly being um, another photographer, another Black photographer, like mm-hmm. that community is actually quite small, and Renee can speak to so many of the things that I experience now, like, you know, working both in uh, a commercial um Mm -hmm. aspect or commercial field and as like a fine artist because renee was like shooting fashion spreads for essence and then also making like her own work and just the balance between um those two things but i want to get a little more specific actually about um the longevity like just just kind of get to the micro like what do you do on a daily basis like what is like your morning routine like you wake (laughs) up and (laughs) How do you get out of bed and to the studio on a consistent basis?
2: To be honest, uh, my studio practice is a pretty straightforward thing. Um, And um, now I used to have a studio that was upstate and a studio that was in the city. And the studio Uh in the city was more of an office and kind of, I could make things there, but it was more like people could come and it was about 600 square feet. People could come and sort of see pieces of things that would be about to be larger scale work Um, and then I would actually make the work upstate and I had this deck and the deck was like 60 feet by 25 feet and I would make almost all this work on this deck and then I'd truck it into the city but uh, I don't work quite like that now and I'm transitioning to trying to have production and keeping my production here closer to where I'm conceiving of work and where I live. So so now I'm in industry city and um, forever and ever I've had this rule about you know, 30, 30, 30, like, so roughly I'm splitting my time, 30% production, 30% marketing, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and the, and it's like you, you realize that like there's the 30% where you're making work is not separate from the 30% where you're marketing the work or the 30% where you're doing administrative work. These are not separate kinds. <laughs> They're all part of this flow, and so on any given day, obviously, 30 thirty, thirty doesn't add up to hundred percent. So any given day, you might put another ten percent into one of these categories, but you're generally kind of flowing through these things because you can't be an artist and just make work in your studio. You can't be an artist and just fill out, um, um, you know, paperwork. You uh, you can't just apply for things. You can't be an artist and just you know send out press releases. You have to do all of these things and. The administrative part is as important as the creative part if you want to have a long-term thing. So for me, generally, a day, I believe very strongly. Like, I have to have a day before I work for anyone else or even myself. Like, I, I'm a human being, and I have value. So it's like I give myself two to three hours. Like, I don't get up in the morning, just throw something in my mouth and run out the door. No. So today, I knew I had this call with you at 10 a.m. I got up at 6.30. I got up at 6.30, I leisurely made my coffee. I read 12 different news outlets because I read the news from left to right every morning, which is weird, but I do that.
1: So I set up one like- What are some of these news outlets?
2: So from left to right, I read uh, Real Clear Politics, Talking Point Media, uh, The Guardian. I can, well, I'll just do it from memory because I could, I could actually do it, like, because I have a bookmark that has all, so you open it up as tabs. So it just it's left to right, it's all set up. So every morning I click one button and then all the news from left to right. And um, so this is what, I, every morning I do a media survey. And so, and, uh, so Real Clear Politics, Talking Point Media, um, Guardian, New York Times, CNN, going for the right, Wall Street Journal, further right, um, Fox News, and then all the way on the right, Drudge Report. There are a couple I I missed in the middle, you know, but it's like 12 different news. So basically what's interesting is every morning, I don't read them all, but I, I definitely see what's above the fold in all of that. And so two or three days on one side, you'll see a story that's left wing and it'll take three days till it gets to the center. Two or three days, you'll see a story that's on the right and no one covers it on the left and it takes a while till it gets to the center. And you see that there's all these people fighting for this information space, but that also relates to like how I make work in that like I'm constantly going out into culture and finding things and grabbing it and shoving it back down into a sort of abstract thing to make art about or a community issue. And um, for me, that time in the morning where I take that two hours before I do anything for anybody else, that's me. Then I become this artist who has all this energy, all of this information. And then I'm like, well, how does that relate to what I'm doing? A lot of the stuff I'm doing now, it's all about location and space. And how can you even understand that if you don't understand what people say about it, how people write about it, how people think about it? So even though all my work now is really abstract, a lot of the ideas are very concrete and they're from press or conversations and um there's a sort of like a background to, to even how i get to get to make work so uh then after doing my day before the day then i get into my day uh because i i work in industry city they're not really a direct train routes so i might get in my car drive over to industry city find a parking space i have it all timed out for the alternate side so i show up park alternate side ends go into the studio maybe i cut for right now, what I'm working on is a large piece for 160th and Allen Clayton Boulevard. I might cut aluminum for uh, like two hours because I can't really cut for more than that without exhausting myself and then it gets dangerous. Don't want to cut your arm off. And then, um, you know, I might take a lunch break, read news articles again, check news. And then I come back in the afternoon, I do a couple more hours, then cleaning up. And then I might see if, because uh, I have like my phone or iPad or somewhere around. So then I might. I might do a little bit of other work, but generally I work Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Then Wednesday, I do administrative work almost exclusively. Then Thursday, Friday, i take Saturday off. And so there's other work that I do on Wednesday. It might not be artwork or whatever, but it's just life work and I end up doing that. So that's pretty much my typical day um and the, one of the reasons I went to industry city is because I could get a space it was just ready to go you just open the door you get to work and also they have like a whole world of food there so you could have food from like you know India food from and you don't have to search like every day you know it's like it's like I can have food from any part of the world that I want and I like I like that in industry city I mean there are people who are working like you're working and um, it's really easy to get stuff trucked in and there's freight. It's, everything is pretty straightforward. So, so that I've been in doing that now almost a year in industry city. So that's changed my process. And it was, I would be before I might be in the city on Thursday or Friday through Monday and then Monday night, I go back upstate and I'd be, if I were on production on a work, the work might be for union square or for uh, central park. Those are the last two pieces I did before when I did now. And uh, I, I literally had an image in my mind of the, the, the spot where it was going to go, but I'm making it somewhere else and I'm tracking it And Now I have much more and much better access. I'm, um, I'm making this piece for 116th and Adam Clayton Boulevard. And before the coronavirus, I would be going to that block every other week to spend time just on that corner. Mm. We'll hang on that corner, the conversations on that corner, all the doctors, all the lawyers who live there, all the, the drug dealers, all the, the undercover cops, all the people who hang out in the park, and, and you get into the conversations with people, and they start to, um, unlike, because my practice doesn't happen in galleries and museums anymore, you realize that all of a sudden people start having conversations with you, and there's like, what are you doing on this corner? you're like, oh, you know, there's going to be artwork here. Or, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm making a thing and it's gonna be here. Like a lot of times I'll say, oh, I'm making a thing and it's gonna be here in like six months. And then they start to get a part of the story. Like, what kind of thing? I'm like, well, I've got about a ton and a half aluminum. I'm gonna get another ton of aluminum. It's gonna come here. It's gonna be creative. And then like, so it's artwork. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, because a lot of people, if you tell people right off you're an artist, they think they're outside it. Mm. So I start to let them, sort of see that they can understand all the pieces of it and then I tell them I'm an artist. So they then they under then they they're already inside it because they're they're like, why are you on this corner? Why would you do this? Like why would you be chatting with us? And the coronavirus basically has meant that my process now is dead because that's that's how I get to make the work. I make because I, I've become a dialogue with the community that I um I I literally just um, I became a finalist for another piece which is gonna be um, a com- which was a commission for, uh, and I don't want to say too much about it because people are very proprietary about that. But it, it's I'm a finalist for this work, which will be on like the Harlem River and blah blah. And there's sort of five artists, and we're competing for this uh, to be the one artist to get to make this work. And it's like I told them, I was like, wow, you know, the deadline for giving you the final proposal is now. You know, after we've now been on on stay at home, and I can't visit the site. I can't talk to people near the site. Mm. So I, 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 I like the, the virus and this pandemic has changed my process. I can't make work. I can finish the work that I've already conceived of and had the input for, for Harlem, 116th Adam Clinton Boulevard, because that's a whole year and a half of having conversations with people. And I know something about them. I know that corner. I know the kids who sit in the cars, you know what I mean? And just are chilling because they want to be home with their parents. I know all of that. And I'm just one of them. I'm just like, they're just like this. That's Ken. Or that's that crazy guy. Sometimes he'd be drawing and he gets too close to traffic. You know what I mean? They were like, watch out, watch out. You know, they, they get into your story. And I think that that's um, so it's like, uh, so now I think my process is, is also engaging to make things in the studio, but also to become part of communities as I'm making work in a community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because uh, especially in communities of color a lot of the artists are not making from within or in parallel to or in hand in hand in hand with the community and that I think that's an issue so that that's and that's why I don't make that much work because it's not just me making work and plunking it down it's like I can't focus on more than one work a year and all other things I have to do and also really know a space uh, and feel confident that I'm making something that will really be adopted. And if it's not adopted, I think that, that 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 has less value to me. And I think it has less value to the community.
1: And so in actually in this kind of new um, paradigm that we find ourselves in, are you thinking about how to maybe shift your practice to adapt or are you feeling like it's on hiatus and then once things start again, you'll get back to it? Or are you thinking like more kind of like nimbly to like, okay, well in this moment I can still do this or I can still create like this, or I can rethink the way that I, uh, I can rethink my creative process in order to at least get through this moment.
2: For, there are two things there. One, eventually I won't be able to, I think it's gonna be a long time until we're able to feel comfortable just be on a corner and just randomly have conversations with people. I think that's gonna take a long time. So that that's part of my process that's gonna be in recovery for some time. But I think that that's gonna come back and I might not give people fist bumps or stand quite as closely and I won't shake people's hands. Uh, but I think one of the things that's really important to me is that um, when when um, and then I'll get to the personal way that has changed after I so, said, is that like I was at 116th and this guy, and he's, he's homeless. He's at the, the A. Philip Randolph Park that's there, which is the only reason why they wanted this artwork. It's near this park. And he's homeless. He comes up to me and he's like, what you doing? And I'm like, I'm drawing. He said, I draw too. I'm like, really? That's awesome. I love drawing. He's like, yeah, me too. And he's just, he's just talking to me. And I realized that, you know, maybe it's not a highlight in his day, but it's a highlight for my day that I consider being an, art, being an artist a privilege and making art as a privilege. And that in that moment when I can tell him that him making work is as important as me making work and I'm making a work, I'm drawing something that's gonna be right here, he's, he's, my, he's my conspirator at that moment. He's gonna adopt that work. He's gonna be there, he's gonna be there for that work. And that's a very vital, powerful part of it. And when I did the piece in Union Square, the work work for the homeless community who lived in Union Square. There's no park in New York City that doesn't have people who are homeless in it, and it's. I'm telling them all the time, "Thank you for letting me make work in your living room," all the time. And then at the same time, the work works for the Municipal Arts Society, and that is the organization that raises the money to do the upkeep for the George Washington Monument, which I did the work about. And so they invite me to this, you know, uh, global summit thing to talk to world leaders about how to make work in society but at the same time you go back to the park the cleaning staff for the park and all the staff and the homeless people they've made up their own docent program so to me it can't be one or the other they did it on their own i didn't ask them to they've just started having initiating conversations with people about the legacy of george washington and africans fighting in his army which my piece washington 2020 is about
1: right 20
2: slaves who work with george washington and uh, uh, the 20,000 20, enslaved Africans in New York, the 20% of George Washington's army that was African at the end when we won, and uh, the 20% of the American population that was enslaved Africans before and after the American Revolution where we're fighting for freedom and the rights of man. So this connection of the African to George Washington, it lit a fire under people and not in one area, but in all of these areas. So that, that has to come back, but it's not going to come back like it was. I'm just going to adapt and grow that but then right now at home this week because there was a a worry a lot of people were just worried about like well, how am i going to get money in the door and what's good gonna... so i had to deal with a lot of practical stuff i wasn't worried about my studio practice i know how to do my studio practice so this week is the first week where and and i told you i wanted to talk with you this week because i knew i could get back to uh focusing on the creative and now in my hand personally Whenever I have uh, free time and I can, I over, ever since I was like four or five, I always take wire hangers and I will bend them into something. Hold on one second, I'll show you one more. Okay. So I make these little things. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. Work. Oh, cool. All of the other things are like the size of a house, like, or they're they are literally architectural but these are architectural too but they're tiny so this is a ser- this is from a series called uh future dictionary and uh and so there's maybe i think in this series there's maybe 30 but i've always i've always been doing stuff like this since i was five so i still do that and so ne- this week i'm going to start new ones which will be like this is part of future dictionary which was shown at uh, the drawing center And then there's a whole box of these at the studio. And this is one that's here. And then there's one on the wall before Future Dictionary. You can see way in the back, you can see a little line drawing on the wall. Yeah. That's that's the wire. And that was before Future Dictionary. And every time I have a lull in the action, I'll make a little thing. And it's like drawing has always been like kind of this – is core part of my practice, and this is drawing
1: for me. And so for people who are just listening, Kinsef is showing us um, like a small cube. So if you you Google him and look at some of his work, it's essentially like a miniature, um, I would call it architecture. Yeah, Oh, you took it right out of my mouth. Um, Like an architectural diorama in a way, but he's made it out of wire hangers, and it's actually really cool. and I think it's also amazing that 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 you that you're also working at these different um, that you're working at these different scales so that you you're still keeping it going
2: yeah, but they they feed each other and yeah. and be very experimental in form without risking my life yeah. Whereas, yeah. <laughs> I mean literally everything I'm doing now, like I have like each sheet of aluminum is one hundred and fifty pounds and and uh, I can be very experimental with it. But as I'm actually working the aluminum, I have to be very mindful um, to have it clamped just so and to, so that I'm, I'm very safe. Uh, whereas this, I can just experiment, be willy-nilly and try out all different kinds of things and consider uh, it and consider it, uh, and consider it uh, a finished work. And, um, and it, it also ties together, even when I was making video work, when I was in art school, they were like, they're like, well, why would you write a screenplay? And I'm like, well, because, you know, it's, it's conceptual. And they, they didn't really, and it was before, and I wasn't at Cal Arts or anything like that. And so it was the 80s. And uh, I went to a very traditional, they had painting and sculpture. And they were like, you wrote a screenplay. But then when I, I took that same screenplay and I sent it to the Whitney program, they immediately just wanted to talk to me. They just wanted to talk to me about all the stuff that was in it. They were like, this is crazy. Why are you so crazy? And, uh, and that's really when you find people who love your crazy. That's a good, good deal so so that to me this this weaving of of material and the other like part of it is wire hanger and the new material is this is electric fencing wire so i buy this you can buy it by the quarter mile a half mile by the mile so i have like miles of this ele- electric uh, fencing wire uh, right. conceptually the two things i think are you know i don't know it's, it's just weird so so it's like even if I, even if I lost the other practice and I never could do work, I could still have like, you know, I mean, you know, Calder, he was from the age of five, he was holed up in his, he was just making stuff and he made the whole uh, menagerie and they were all, you know, it was weird. Cause he would be making these like mines and tires and the circus and all this stuff. And for me, it's always been abstract. Uh, I made like one large scale like hand when I was in high school or something like that. It was like, made like a 16, uh, six foot hand out of like wire hangers at my grandma's house. Amazing. <laughs> but that was, you know, it's high school. You, you, you get like crazy ideas. So, but now it's all abstract stuff, but um, but it still weaves together all of these different ways that I think about line and form and architecture and storytelling. And they, they all fit together like a kind of an alphabet that fills up a, a space, so. um artists, you know, we can't stop creating, you know how it is. You have to create, uh, but you know, we have to also, we're consuming culture right now. And right now, I can't go into the streets and consume things because a lot of what's out there right now is fear.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that,
2: that's the antithesis of, of
1: creativity. And actually you, you went literally right into it. Like, um, one of my next questions was how does architecture, play a role in your work and in your practice or how you're thinking about it like in in just doing some research looking at your work and a lot of your recent work um there is a a heavy like design like actual like mm-hmm. architectural design element to it and you're also playing with um space like both mm-hmm. negative space and then this kind of almost like um like kind of your small diorama where you're you're playing with walls and then invisible walls right mm-hmm. so the, the outline of an environment without actually weighing the environment down and even your piece at brick which is all wood and you know and the feathers still fit, because of the way that it's installed still feels very open still mm-hmm. feels very mm-hmm. like expansive so um, so what role does, you know, architecture or the built environment or even or even just conceptually the idea of space mm. play like in your practice or just even just how you're just thinking about it on a daily basis? I mean,
2: first, I think, you know, I fell in love with filmmaking more than anything else first. And which is funny because I don't make movies any, and I never really. I never really considered a, you know, like, you know, Schnabel makes movies now and that, that's a whole other thing. It's a different craft. But but in terms of, because I started out, I was a first generation of people doing digital video art via um, Apple computers and, and handhelds and all that stuff. It's like, I think that one of the reasons that I get into space is because I understand how stories unfold as you explore an abstract space. Everybody knows how they feel when they enter a room that makes them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. very few people can do that but everybody knows how they feel and they know you know there's a reason why hospital rooms are never blood red you know they're always like light blue and so you you understand that and so in a way it's like I feel like abstract art is a bit like cooking and I'm layering on all these different elements and smells and tastes and allowing people to see through it um but I feel like as far as being connected to telling stories and history, I I go back and I sort of latch onto a place, and then I take from that place, I try to make more there there, and most of that is actually what's already built there, and the lives that have lived through it. So in some ways, like I, I, in the preliminary questions you had sent me, you talk about uh, whether or not I consider spirituality and stuff like that. I mean, I'm devout you know non-believer. I mean, I'm an atheist and I'm not a believer but but I am a real adherent to history and I understand and I grew up in a uh I grew up in a historically black christian church and I and I understand that tradition and I'm a real uh believer in kind of using and respectfully engaging with traditions so that people can see them and if you're a believer you can have more belief and if you're a non-believer, you kind of understand your distance from it. Now, I think that sounds, that's a very abstract thing to say, but the piece I'm working on for, uh, uh, for Harlem right now is called Boulevard of African Monarchs. And I'm using painting from the outside of houses in Tiabele, which is Burkina Faso. And it's this royal village where all of these kings and uh, local chiefs are, are, are enshrined essentially. And I'm taking the painting on the outside of the house and making them into the house so the paint marks are now going to be physical things that you can see through and inhabit and there you know a it's not a particular monarch that i'm speaking to but also a kind of shared legacy that everybody is descended from some monarch or other or some local somebody everybody is and so that's a global thing that is a uniting thing. But then also, you know, we're in America and it's obviously we have a democracy and no principality and no royalty. So it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. Democracy is
1: debatable, but yes, keep going. Yes,
2: it's, it's a debatable <laughs> democracy, yeah. And then it also, you know, there's an African-American community there. There's a really vibrant African business. There's a African marketplace that's on 116th Street that's very vibrant. And so all of these things meet at this object and i think whether or not i was from this particular belief system in africa i can usefully point to it to allow people to have a way to communicate about their connection to it or not and that's really i think what the open space in my sculpture is um, say when i did a piece in socrates sculpture park and it was a two-fifths scale, 40 foot by 40 foot by 20 foot, outline of an Astoria House's uh, uh, public housing tower. And a lot of the people who work, at the, who work at the park are living in the public housing. They have a program and they, they mentor people and they get you jobs. It's, it's amazing, the relationship. And they would ask me, they were like, why would you make this, this thing that is a, a shape that is, is like our house? And I'm like, well, what happens when you make a portrait of someone? And they're like, yeah, but why would you make a portrait of our house? And, you know, what do you want us to say about it? And I'm like, well, what would you say about your house? And this relationship, this Socratic questioning and Socratic method is asking questions. So this, at Socrates, I made this Socratic method where the, the space that I created for people and the the residents of the public housing who were working in the park, they all volunteered to help me make the work, that they got to look at their house and where they lived as the subject of contemporary art. And it wasn't from the top down. It wasn't like I was looking down at them. It was more, in fact, that they were open to make any interpretation they want. It didn't matter. It was a very powerful position to put them in. Lots of people make art about individual topics and what I'm attempting to do is allow that there be a really open space for people to communicate and inhabit where they are and get more of where they are and feel more powerful where they are when they're there Mm. and that sense that you could make someone's home feel more like home by putting art in it is fundamental to the way that I make work in that Everybody knows if, if you have a house and it's all filled with things that other people have given you as, or, or chosen for you as opposed to what you choose, it's a different sense. So when I go to a community, I want the work to be adopted. I want it to feel like it had always been there and that it was what they always wanted. And that's hard to do, but you have to kind of either pick the right thing that was already there or find something that's missing and put it there or get people talking in a way about space. And that's why I use abstraction, because clearly it can't be one thing. It can be many things. So, um, and that's why I use architecture and I use storytelling. At, At Union Square, you could see the piece from three blocks away, four blocks away. It told a different story only via color from three blocks away. From 300 feet away, it told another story because you could see that George Washington was on top of it right from three blocks four blocks away you could see that there was this red to it and it sort of like made almost like um i could see people walking from three blocks away because they just seen this bright red and they wanted to know what it was it was out of the ordinary then from 300 feet away they're like why is george washington on this bright red and then right up close there's a sign and there's this conversation about the africans and there's feathers and tar and all of these african patterns and all of a sudden you're in this dialogue whether or not you understand it from the way that I understand it, the relationship of George Washington being on this African symbol builds something for the user, for the viewer. And, uh, and that, um, that's kind of that's how I construct. And some of those symbols will be from different religious traditions, and you have to understand those traditions really well. Like I have all these stacks of books, like um, right now, uh, in a stack of books over here there's uh, "How to Read a Church." Being Digital by Negroponte, Basquiat, Mika Rottenberg, uh, Encyclopedia of North American Birds. That was, I don't use that one for art very much, but it's very
1: good. Well, yeah. no, actually, well, you have a, there's a lot of feathers in your work. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of feathers in your work. Don't act, don't act. You can't fool me. Your last piece had 20,000 feathers. And you're like, ah, uh, about North America. <laughs>
2: Oh. Yeah, that's true. You got me there. You got me there. So, yeah. So, so then, you know, all of these things, they all factor in. And um, what's interesting to me is that when I do work, like, say, I used to lecture in art history uh, to rocket scientists. So they weren't art people. And I was at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. These are like programmers and rocket scientists, but they didn't know very much about art. And I would be talking to them about, you know, Islamic art. And so in Islamic art, there are four major categories. So from most used to least used, there's uh, calligraphy, uh, geometric abstraction, uh, vegetal abstraction, which is plants and stuff like that. And then the least used is figural representation. And uh, like Judaism, they are aniconic. Christianity is iconic. So we all have pictures of the things that we worship. But Judaism, they specifically do not make pictures of the things that they worship or think are uh, venerable and and as Islam is the same no pictures because of the second commandment no pictures right and what's interesting there is that this this body if you look at the four areas the calligraphy is super abstract it's everywhere it's ubiquitous and the geometric and the vegetal patterns they're everywhere and they they're they're communicating to you, but not necessarily pointing to things that you can say are um, a dog or a cat. They're almost entirely emotional. So if if I work correctly, i made something abstract that people feel as close to, like most people trust their dog and their cat more than they trust their partner. (laughs) <laughs> the abstract feeling. The abstract feeling. This is some New York Times study that I'm recounting, but the fact is that, that people talk to these and feel things uh, when it's open. And and I want I want that. And in every case, in every case, and I can't say that I will succeed with Boulevard of African Monarchs, but I can say that in every case there has been someone who has adopted the work where it was. And at, at Union Square, I remember there was a point where I'm there talking with Mitchell Silver, who's also African American, and he's the commissioner of New York City Parks, and a homeless guy who lives under George Washington Monument, and the three of us, me an art student, we, the three of us, are there just having this, you know, shooting the, you know, just chatting about art. It was amazing, and and and, and that that only it 's so you know like if i if I have a show at a, a gallery museum it's like I enjoy the conversation I have with people, but i but I never get that full range of everybody from the completely deep dispossessed to the most powerful and connected all in one place, and that's what makes artists dangerous. that is why they fear us
1: mm. I want to get back to this role of 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 community and mm. um and just your inherent and effortless love for other people um, so bookmark that um yeah. i to. I, I wanted this this idea that you brought up um about um you know like in the islamic and the judaeus deo um tradition that they do not create pictures of the things that they worship and in Christianity, they do. I find that to be really interesting. Now, you know, you've been out here much longer than I have, um, and you've actually taught on these subjects. So I wanna ask you like, in thinking about those things, how do you view um, social media and celebrity and the Mm. culture that, that the Western and particularly, you know, particularly like the roman catholic church Mm -hmm. and its derivatives right which is which Mm -hmm. include you know protestantism and all of these things like how that world has created um this other world of celebrity and icon um you know iconography um and social media and the ways in which now because of social media each person has the ability to then become an icon, to be something that we could, another could worship or want to be like versus, you know, this Islamic and um, Jewish tradition of not creating like, I'm sorry, like you just mentioned that. And I just like, my mind just was like, (laughs) okay, whoa, we have two completely different modes of thinking about not only ourselves and the figure, um, but also its representations, and then the repercussions, the cultural repercussions of representation of the figure versus the um, non-representative. Non-figure.
2: The figure figure versus the form. Yes. And this is where it's interesting, because you you can, first of all, I think most new media right now is about crippling people. Uh, Most of capitalism is about creating lack, and creating lack in you so that you will monetize. Absolutely. If you, you know, if you feel like your hair isn't well or your, your face isn't, you'll buy makeup or you'll buy clothes to, to change the, the way, the shape of your body. All of that stuff is about lack.
1: But
0: yeah.
2: in, in terms of this space of the new media, I, I think now, I, I, I honestly think that um, at, every, at every point where we're engaged with media, it's. it can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. If you feel like it's too important, it can be dangerous. If you don't feel like it's important enough, it can be dangerous. And I think people don't take it quite, quite that serious. Uh, and, and and one should. Uh, especially in an environment where very few of the things you can see are verifiable or truthful. And that's why I read, I read so much media every day because I don't want to have one way of getting into an idea about where I'm going. I want... I don't, I don't agree with any Republicans, but I want to know how they phrase their ideas about their difference in the way that they approach a problem to me. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with any of it, but I want to know. And when I have a conversation with them, I have an informed conversation. I respect Christianity, I'm not a Christian, but I'm fundamentally and fully inherently in full and complete agreement with an idea of a Christian ethic that is to love your neighbor and to love your enemy as you would love yourself, which is the most difficult thing in the history of the world to conceive of. I mean, it's really difficult to really love someone who would kill you. So these, these, are, these are fundamental Christians' ideas, but the idea that there are all of these um, traditions about images that are either abstract or representational, and they're you know, we we live in a culture and it's expansive. And now because of social media, a lot of it's overlapping. There's all these different ways. And so for me, um, Christian culture is very extrovert. So you have a picture of a person. And if you're, if you're a traditionalist, you're looking at an idea of someone from the Middle East. And you, you think of this person t- talking to people about love in the midst of the Roman Empire you got to say that that's really crazy stuff, right? But that person and the image that most people have of that person has, uh, it looks like a European, which just, mm-hmm. just you know, the, the, some people go to a church and it's African-American community and they have the, their their deity from the Middle East is blonde and blue-eyed, right? The son of their, it, it's just, it, these things are inconsistent. So the more you understand about the history of the space, the more you can sort of give people space to contemplate what what image they are adhering to and think is important and that is where you take the danger of being in a media space down a notch because you are being critical and you're thinking about what it is that you're being given and when you do that you diffuse the ball. if you if you take all media if you took in all media and you watched television for 24 hours and you didn't have a way to be critical about it you would create you would commit suicide because you don't have the car that they're trying to sell you. You don't have the house. You don't have the money. And even if you had the money, you would never have enough. You're not tall enough. You're not short enough. You're not this. You're not that. It, it's all about what you're not.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't matter because somebody's also going to come in and murder you for sure. For <laughs> or, sure. So or, or, rape, saying... or rape your daughter. So you have to <laughs> find security
2: <laughs> So it's it's just bananas. So what what I like to do is I think about all these different things and I go, wow, you know this. When I'm layering an artwork, some of the relationship of of, uh, this, you know, with the Judeo-Christian Islamic world, these are all Abrahamic. So they're all Old Testament. They're all the descendants of Abraham. So when you look at it in that way, there's more alike to them. You know, people, you
1: know,
2: after 9-11, there were tons of people who said they don't want Sharia law, but they want a, a law from the Ten Commandments. I'm like, well, that is the same thing. You know, it's, those, those are the same. That's Abrahamic tradition through Moses. And it just, so the fact that people don't know that their 70% of the world population basically have the same God, but that they worship it in different ways and that they have different image-making traditions, yeah. some which are abstracts, it's very interesting. So the idea of going into a synagogue as opposed to going into a church, as opposed to going into an Islamic mosque, is that you get a different feeling But the God, Allah, Yahweh, God, the father, that is the same God. So what's interesting to me is that if you look at them, you know, culture is production. We make it up. Mm -hmm. So the religions in the culture, even if you if you say you're a Roman Catholic, right? And you say, well, everybody who's holy in our pictures has a halo. Where'd the halo come from? Like, why did we think that? Like, why did we think that? And that has all to do with Constantine. So in 312, he converts, and he was a sun worshiper, the halo. So his idea of what a holy image is, is a person. Apollo. yeah. So, you know, in every, every time that you're laying on these images, there are people who are going to go deep into it, and there are people who are going to stay on the surface. But even for people who stay on the surface, you can give them quite a deep feeling by just using uh, you know it's like you like I went to uh, Italy and I I do these trips right so I went to Italy and I went and saw every David that was made Mm -hmm. so you know like uh, Michelangelo and uh, and his teachers and uh, Donatello and his teachers and then uh, Del Rocchio and all this and so every person who made from the when when representation returns from Giotto through the high renaissance, I looked at every David sculpture. And what I discovered is that this one t- topic went from being the uh, Hebrew, David is Hebrew, and you know, and no one doesn't know the story of David and Goliath. You can go anywhere in the world like David and Goliath. They know exactly what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. But the image of David over 600 years completely changes, right? Mm-hmm. until you get to Michelangelo's, who's the most well-known. And if you look at Michelangelo's David, it's really weird. Like Michelangelo's David, is a giant unto itself. It's weird. Like, he's not a little boy. He's not a giant fighting. He's not a kid fighting a giant. Michelangelo's David looks like the most killer buff. It's so weird. It's like, this person doesn't look like they need any help to win this battle. (laughs) Right? And the earlier versions of David were, like, these small boys, and many times they would be in almost dresses, almost to overly feminize them to show that they were not killers. They were not the, you know, that like this story where someone kills this giant, and in in this way you realize um, that in the earlier versions, um, they show David as more and more uh, unmuscled, smaller. And that emphasizes the part of the story that David doesn't defeat the Goliath. He believes in God and God helps him defeat Goli- Goliath. You get to Michelangelo's story and you realize that the person who commissioned that is Julius II. He's the only Pope who sat as a Pope with a sword and actually rode into battle to kill his enemies. So then you see that around all these images and the way and all of the things that we think of as masterpieces from the Renaissance are, the vast majority of them are Julius II who increased the uh, geography of the papacy. Mm-hmm. by force of arms. And so then you go, well, wow, Julius II was like the this warrior pope and his idea of beauty is is uh, is what we think of as Renaissance beauty. But that's because he he paid for it in, in literal gold because he was connected to the Medici and the banking system. And also he paid for it in literal blood because he was willing to lop off any head that said it wasn't beautiful. So even if it, it isn't on the surface of the work that I do I tend to know a lot about every pattern that comes into the work that I use, and then I allow a lot of space for people to interpret those patterns and to place themselves in this history. And then when they start pushing on what I've presented There's never an an end to it. So you can go deeper and deeper and deeper into the work and become, and that's where adoption feels really important, even though it starts out really simple. Boulevard of African Monarchs starts out really simple. But when people start pushing on it, they realize they can become very connected to this. It 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 is it's part of their history. Hopefully, this piece I haven't made yet.
1: <laughs> That's good. Now I'm like, oh, I'm I'm. I mean, even just in you speaking about it, like I am in like a whole. I'm lost. I mean, I'm not lost, but you know, I feel like. Well, hopefully you will want to sit. I, I need to sit. I need to sit. <laughs> down and think (laughs) I'm just like in this space of just like you know and and you know and these you know amazing connections and I you know history is so interesting and and plays not only a a part in a lot of artists work but in yours particularly like you are like you go deep 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 um you know the what's the name of beast? spook spook yes spook yeah when you speak about um Armistead and his role yeah. with, um, with with Washington, but before I go on that whole tangent, I would love to go back to this idea again of community because, particularly now in, in the newest iteration of, of yourself and your practice, like the public mm-hmm. and people really play. Uh, they don't even they don't play. It's a it's a collaboration. Like you are really making it with the community, but you generally like your spirit your energy is one of an outward love like of one wanting to connect um Mm. where does that come from where does that start is that something that you're even aware of like do you even recognize that like and so yes so one when did that begin like where does that come from and then two um just the role of community in your work beyond kind of what you mentioned earlier
2: Well, I'm the youngest of eight kids. Okay. My oldest brothers fought in Vietnam. My father fought in World War II and uh, Korea. And so my idea of being this little pup, basically, was, you know, even when I was like a little baby, they would throw me because they were like Vietnam roughnecks. So they would stand on either side of my living room 20 feet apart and just throw me across the room. And so I, I, I've always been amongst this crowd of people that I really, you know, they're giants and I don't, I like them, you know what I mean? But I just so it's like, I, I don't think I've ever been, you know, I mean, when you are the youngest of eight, you don't even ever get your own fresh pair of underwear. You, everything is a hand-me-down, like everything, yeah. oh, okay. everything. So you, so I've always been in a group in a sense, you know? Um, mm. So that, that's natural to me. Um, but actually, naturally I'm an introvert naturally alone and reading uh but then in order to cope with life you 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 build an extrovert persona and uh there are pure sort of narcissists who really feed on uh uh community and so bill clinton would be a pure narcissist who feeds on crowds obama would be uh someone who's like myself who's an introvert but can be extrovert and so there's a there's a cost so like uh, in the piece I did in Central Park, I think I talked to 600 people directly in one day. But then after that, I don't want to talk to people for days because it's a lot. It's a lot of energy. And I don't, I don't feed on it in that way. But I love the energy. And I love that um, it's worth any sacrifice to have an art world that has more people in it and have people in it that are more understanding and more open. Art changes people. Um, in terms of community in general, uh, I think the art world's too small. Mm. Uh, I think it needs to be bigger. Mm. And I think it mostly excludes people of color uh, because we're not on the boards of museums and we're not uh, the, you know, we're not the target audience for most of the institutions in the arts. So uh the reason why the Renaissance is the way that it is, the Medici's are the banking clan. They have their own banks, their own army, and they're connected to the papacy and they support all the popes. So so much so that at the end, the I think Pope Leo X is a de Medici. So they they pay for all Popes and then Pope Leo is a. So then it's just one family, right? And so that that's the way the arts works. It's very inbred. So I want there to be more community, and I want there to be more people of color because I think that that's and one a that that's how communities become strong if you can communicate ideas and you provide value to people. Um, and then beyond that, I think. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I can't. I when I make when I think about the work that I made and like the first ten years of my work, I did work collaboratively with a group called Express, myself, Tony Cox, Doug Anderson, Mark Pearson, uh, and we did ten years on the legacy of uh, media art on Malcolm X, the late Nation of Islam. My next big series work was also about ten years, and it was mostly on uh, Spook which is mostly uh, James Armistead Lafayette, the, le- the legacy of Africans in the American Revolution from the beginning of the democracy. Um, and in each case with Malcolm X, at that time, you know, Malcolm X was not a hero when we began. But by the end, after Spike Lee makes a movie, he's in mm-hmm. every other hip hop song, there are shows and museums about Malcolm X, he's an American hero. The next group, like now, when I started making work on Spook on James Armistead Lafayette, Nobody, nobody really considered the American Revolution an intelligence war, which now it is. And of course, there's a hit TV show called uh, uh, Turned, I think it is. Yeah, that was a hit TV show, and it's all about the spies in the American Revolution. And Google writes an article about my work, and they're like, you know, Brooklyn, you know, uh, no NPR writes an article. Google helps artists find new founding father. So there, there are no African American founding fathers, and now at least people consider it. And that's interesting. And then now what's interesting is that the project that I'm in now, Fartherland, and now I'm beginning a new phase of it, which is going to be called uh, Sankofa. So it's like Sankofa celebration. So Sankofa is to return and take it. And I realized that like Fartherland was about looking at the work I did in the American revolution and that 10 years and using like a battery and making these abstractions that people can engage and now I realize that, like, as it gets finer and finer, it's like, it just takes me a long time to get into a subject, do a thing, and be done with it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so
2: it's like 10 years, 10 years, and now I'm into the 10th year, getting close to, and it's starting to become more, more sharply focused on celebrating our legacy to an African heritage and taking it, and instead of seeing... You know, I don't have a history living in Africa, but that doesn't mean that I have an inauthentic link to it. It means that I have a unique link to it, but everybody does. If you grew up in Africa, you don't have a link to the other 49 countries. You have a link to where you're from, and, those, and that, that link is unique. So that and understanding that I think is really important about how it is that I approach the work that I'm doing now.
1: Um, and then, you know, I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time, because I... No you busy you got your stuff um but i want to i want to ask this last question um about time and how you consider time and how it also relates to your work because when you were speaking about and I, i can't remember if we spoke about this before the podcast started but when you were speaking about like you never Thought and probably no one ever thought, in when you were in school, that you would be the one that would still be making art. You know, after thirty years and still yeah. making art. You know, in New York City. So, what? And and then when you spoke about um, Thelma Golden show um, at the Whitney, um, how at the time the press vilified it and didn't write anything quite positive about it and now it's this like groundbreaking show that we now look back on or even when you just mentioned you know malcolm x you know like at the time
2: at the time
1: you know and then things you know and then there is time that passes and then we can look back with a different eye you know me as a photographer Mm -hmm. you know a third of my work is actually just time like i take the image And, but we don't know what the image is. I won't know what the image is or its impact or anything until there has been time, Um, you know, 20 years. years, you know, 30 years, then we'll know what it was. So, so for you, like what role does time play both in your own life, you know, and how you project yourself into the future and then how do you see yourself existing and then just the time like of your actual work?
2: Well, I mean, I think one thing that's really interesting to me um, is like for someone like yourself, like uh, a photographer like Ming Smith, Mm you know, she she was just looking and no one else was looking. And she's like, oh, look, Black people are people, just people in neighborhoods. And like, that was radical. Like, people were like, really? Black people are just people in neighborhoods? They're not uh, statistics? Or crime stats, or or you know, or problems. Mm
1: hmm. Mm hmm. Mm
2: hmm. Um. So I think the story of my, the funny thing is, is that like you know, I, I never sought to be an artist who was famous, or what I just wanted to make work that was meaningful. Okay, and and and, that, and that to be engaged in culture and. To, and what I look at now is that, like, you know, I remember when Thelma Golden just introduced herself to me. I, I, don't have, I don't know how she knew who I was, but she just literally came up to me and said, hey, Ken Seth. And I'm like, hi, who, who are you? She's like, I'm Thelma. And I'm like, great. And then within a year and a half, I was working with her on this show, which at the time I didn't think would be um, vilified, okay? Because who wants to say, I mean, like, if like would you like to be in a show that will be vilified? Like, uh, out of a hundred articles ninety nine will say that you're completely misspending your time. You wouldn't say yes to that, but we you know we knew that there were going to be some pushback, but you know um, I think that the story of my 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 career is that I've been really fortunate and like you know to spend ten years working on the legacy of the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X, and being part of hundreds of other people doing this cultural work to help make him understood. And an American hero, and to by the end of the '90s, uh, Islam and the Nation of Islam and being Muslim in America was like as ho hum as being anything. I mean, it just was. It was just we we made that cultural work. We produced that as a group of people who were interested in the topic. And then the next work that I ended up doing, almost you know, when when I was in school, um, there was no one talking to me. About the African presence in the American Revolution, and I had no idea what our role was in that. And my nieces and nephews—they don't have that question. They know <laughs> the impact of that, and the impact of that is across the feature filmmaker who had to reach out to me because he wanted to do a piece on the Marquis Lafayette, and then he had to reach out to me because he heard the story about the African who bore his name as well, and so I ended up working on a, a feature film with uh, you know Academy Award nominated filmmaker. And you realize that like, even though you're no one in a corner doing your thing, I had become a world-renowned expert on the African presence in the American Revolution and anybody who wanted to know something. Now there are other people who have written as PhDs on this, but like, I was in that space first. With Thelma, I was in that space first to help people understand how it is that Africans and how we treated the, 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 the legacy of the African representation masculine in culture. We were there first. And um, and mm. now I look at it and the way that I go about doing work in community and making art that's outside of museums and galleries. I'm going there first. And, and a lot of people wouldn't say I'm the most known person for doing any of this work. But I, I think that that doesn't matter as much as doing the work. And that's why I have such longevity and such satisfaction in doing the work I do, because I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to be out here just, you know, finding a space for, you know, the, the, commissioner of parks in new york city and a homeless person to have a real meaningful conversation about art that is like i'm over the moon you know uh so and i and i think i'm really fortunate i mean also when when i started this dialogue like you know um i, I had this dialogue with tony Cox and then one of his students mark tribe wanted to do work to have critical writing about new media art and i i helped launch Rizal and and i didn't care that nobody thought it wasn't was art. I just cared that I would be part of that work. Mm -hmm. And that's the satisfying thing. I think um, some people are going to sell a lot of work. Some people are going to get a lot of press. Some people are going to be stars. Some people are going to be ignored. But I think that regardless of whether or not we ever got to Carmen Herrera's work, she was happy in that work. She was dedicated to that work. And I get that. And I think that that's the mistake a lot of people make as young artists now because they they can see that a lot of the art world is galleries and art fairs now but those things especially the art fairs i think that they're antithetical
1: well well, it is now we'll see we'll see what happens when we all get back in the streets <laughs>
2: you, you, can't, you can't have an art fair now you, you literally can't have an art fair now so you can still have great art but you can't have an art fair and that tells you the importance
1: of which to which yeah this has been an amazing like time of like reduction and I mean reduction in like again like what are the essentials mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. It, I think it has really shown us where the ex- excess is like where the fat is mm. um how mu- and and so we're being starved right like mm-hmm. we literally being starved right now and so it's and you know it's you know the ketosis process right in your body your body starts to go for those fat cells and starts to get rid of rid of that first. Like, or wait, I'm, I'm talking about ketosis. Like I, I just make it up. Ketosis. I don't even know if that's what ketosis is, but I just know <laughs> it's going to go for that first, right? It is going mm-hmm. to go for the excess first before it starts going to like the essential organs. Right. And I think culturally, that's. What this break is kind of doing and and I think that if we come out of this and try to go back to business as usual, we will have all missed a huge opportunity. Um, but yeah, but there's a lot of because, you know, you know, the art fairs, the galleries and I mean, no shade like, you know, I love my friends for galleries and all these things, but it's just a lot of middlemen. It's a lot of intermediary um, Industries that Are just not really totally necessary, or that we have an opportunity now to rethink them, you know, re- rethink the bloat of their, you know, existence. Um, because it, again, and, 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 and it, again, I, why do I keep saying again? Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe I've had too much coffee, um, but you know, it's just, You know i just think about you know the artist as as commodity even the artists that you know sell a lot of work just like athletes who make a lot of money they yet and still are a commodity they are yet and still bought and sold and it's those who profit off of the fat of that um that we are starting to see in this moment
2: Mm -hmm.
1: are they necessary do we need them in this quantity i think
2: the galleries are absolutely necessary i think art fairs on some level are absolutely absolutely necessary the auction houses are absolutely necessary but i think that at the core of it when i started to make the series of work that i'm doing now these last 10 years of exploration has been over six years you know it just that i realized that the audience was in the galleries and the museums was not an audience that is a community that was Mm -hmm. um uh it was self-selected so it was tourists and it was people interested in art but it was not people broadly left now that might not be important to i remember when the galleries all moved from chelsea from from soho to chelsea and there were a lot of like fashion houses and all the stuff that moved into Soho and it became like an open mall. And the galleries were overrun with just people walking in and they they weren't interested in art and everything. And I think that the the culture clash was that they were having a hundred people and they couldn't really decide which one of the hundred was the collector that was there to really know about art and buy art. And so for me, because I'm not that interested in whether people can buy or sell what I do, I'm much more interested in say, well, what are those 99 people, you know, not to get them to a space that is a white cube where they can see my idea, but to go to where they are and to uh, be engaged with them about the beauty where they are. And that is one thing that say, you know, in a culture where gentrification is everywhere, uh, you realize that culture and community are being erased to do capitalism, to do, you know, bigger and better development. you have to remove ethnic people from neighborhoods to make them better and i just find that weird and i find that you know every neighborhood i go to like at socrates Sculpture park that greek community absolutely appreciated that i was engaging a socratic tradition by asking questions of the african-americans who are the majority population in the public housing that their tax dollars pay for that the people who were in the public housing's tax dollar paid for too so we we by doing that by putting the mirror there and to go to a neighborhood and say you're beautiful where you are you you don't have to it's it's um it's an active cultural work so i I think you know I think that there there has to be this broad you know there has to be this broad cultural engagement from the fact that you know you know Malcolm X or Martin Luther King Jr. or uh, Marcus Garvey all these communicating voices Shirley Chisholm, all these people out there, you, you don't have as complicated a communication without, with one of them missing. You know, Shirley Chisholm running for president made it possible uh, for uh, women to be seen in that powerful role, whether or not they won or not.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: These these foundations have to be set and you have to have all of this dialogue. And And I think that For me, what was really liberating is that, like, I didn't have to make 30 works to make a body of work that could be in a gallery to be bought and sold, but that I would have 30,000. I mean, for the piece at Union Square, in three months, somewhere upwards of 600,000 people saw that one work and had a dialogue about Africans and their relationship to Washington and the American Revolution. If I had shown in a gallery, maybe 50 to 250 people would see such a thing. Hmm. At, at the most 1,000 to 2,000. But they wouldn't be people who would necessarily have considered this to be completely new information or, um, or consider themselves to be non-art world people who could be engaged with a piece of abstract art. So the, the day after I installed, I think um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave a rally, uh, and at the time it was for Puerto Rico, And they were uh, talking about that there should be, you know, more of a response to the the hurricane in in Puerto Rico at the feet of Washington. So my, my conversation about George Washington and Africans was there in this conversation about the descendants of Africans in Puerto Rico. At the same time, this is like 40,000 people in this one evening at the feet of Washington. So when we're engaging in public space, um, and what's interesting, there's going to be this book called The uh, Teachable Monuments. That's coming out next week, next year. And so you realize that these monuments are constantly being used by the public, either ignored or used to make a point. And Alexander Ocasio-Cortez was at this foot of this monument of George Washington for the same reason that I was there to have this conversation. Uh, for the same reason that, say, Phyllis Wheatley, who was the most a famous poet in 1781, who's African, writes him a letter and she she sends him poetry. She sends him poetry to say, you know, you should consider Africans as part of this freedom thing since you're fighting for freedom. And, you know, he writes her back. And the, the idea that Phyllis Wheatley was there, that I knew about her poetry, and I knew about this exchange of letters between her and George Washington and that became friends, even though he was a slave owner, she was a former slave and a poet that's kind of what was gave me the idea to do that piece in the beginning that like art like that she sent him a poem totally changed his idea idea of like he didn't have you know like why would he make friends with some random african lady like it just wouldn't happen but she sent him a poem totally changed the course of history Mm. and so that that's why i do these abstract poems to people because we can we can make more of that I mean people know there's an art world but the vast majority of people who go to galleries are not people who don't expect to be there or be part of this world They're mostly mm. you know, and they people on the outside consider that it's all for insiders and I and I um and I I don't work like that
1: yeah yeah and I think just to kind of you know we have to wrap up but I, what I really <laughs> hear you saying is just how important it is for you to do your work but period. The press, the selling, all that that. But you have to show up. Yeah. Show up and do your work.
2: Yeah, and I think that's every artist. And some people are going to be some people are going to be making the most amazing work in, in, in galleries because that that's where their work needs to be. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I really admire that. But my work, when I realized that that I could do this, that like there are certain skills, like there are not a lot of artists who could be on a street corner and inhabit it for a few months and just have random conversations with people and sort of, it's just like, but I have that, I have that, I have that skill. And it's like, so, um, and it's almost like, I feel like um, all, all all, of these experiences I've had in 20 years before starting to do this kind of work gave me a kind of a, sort of education to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I've got to just make the best of it and uh, and hopefully make work that I feel you know uh, connects with people and and makes more there there
1: That's amazing, bro. Well, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for taking this time to chat with me. Um, could you let people know where they can connect with you um, you know your instagram website all of this information Cool.
2: Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for having this dialogue with me because it's a very brave thing to, to go out and just collect up these creative people and have these conversations. Thank you. It, it's my honor. Uh, that My website is kensetharmstead.com. Uh, my IG is kenseth.armstead, and it's K-E-N-S-E-T-H dot A-R-M-S-T-E-A-D, but my website is just kensetharmstead, all one word, dot com. Um, and those are the only two that I have. I have IG. I think at the moment I'm private for various reasons but I you know it's like I had a couple of friends that I uh, uh you know one was a mentor and one was kind of a, a professional friend uh, Maurice Berger and then you know another friend died of coronavirus and I, I felt like that was I mean mo- a lot of my IG is about the work and and that was very personal to me and so uh you know it's uh you know uh, it's it's like I I've made my website my Instagram uh private for the moment, but people can follow if they want uh, but um, you realize that yeah uh th- that's how people can contact me but in my website on kinsletharmstead.com you can always send use the contact form and send an email i definitely check it and i uh, definitely have responded to people and so people do that and then with ig it's a, it's a it's a free-for-all on ig everybody talks to everybody
1: <laughs> awesome man well this has been amazing i can't wait to connect with you like in person when ever, know, like, else, baby moment happens, um, we'll have to have you up to the studio. I have to come down there and have a drink. I'm definitely
0: come to your studio. I
1: can I can cook. Like I can <laughs> I can make a meal. I'm like oven, stove, like got it set up. So I'll cook something for us. Excellent. And I'm right next door to Bronx Brewery, so we I don't know if you drink beer, but like you know. I,
2: I like a local I like a local
1: <laughs> amazing and have a wonderful afternoon and thank, thank you. you so much thank okay. you Ciao. Ciao.
0: thank you all so much for tuning into this hyper informative conversation with kinseth armstead it was a history lesson no the synapses in my brain are literally like firing like crazy if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to send it to one friend you think would really love this conversation. And please be sure to rate and review us over on iTunes, which helps out so much. Shout us out over on Instagram, at Black Imagination Podcast, and on Twitter, at Black Imagination, which is B-L-K-Imagination. Tweet some of your favorite quotes with the hashtag, #ProcessingThePod, And if you're able to support this work, click the support link in the show notes. Please... Take care of yourself. Keep a journal. Begin a meditation practice. Learn to forgive yourself. Let the first thought of the day be one of gratitude and just watch your world shift before your very eyes. Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.